and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back for another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last. It's a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down the road of wrestling history, sharing his personal tales with all of us here on the Studcast. Without any further ado, the man himself, the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, we're going to return to something we kind of teased at the end of last week's episode. We usually do questions. We didn't get a chance to do the questions, so we're going to begin today's episode with the questions, including the big one from last week. Right. And, uh, you know, when we got to the last week, uh, we were running along, and uh, first question that I saw that you mentioned that uh, I, I thought it would not take long to answer that, but then I saw the second one about uh, about the other plane wreck from, in 1975, and I knew that was going to take some time to do, and I kind of like the idea. We're going to open up. We're going to change our format here. But at the same time, we're going to get right into to two great questions, uh, and we'll start from there today, and then get back later in the program to back into Florida again. So it uh, works for me. Works for you. Works for me, and I think it'll work for everyone else. But before we get to those questions, we do want to make mention the reaction to Super Studcast Number Eight has been through the roof. Thank you to everyone. Thank you for listening to it. Thank you for telling people, and thank you for getting in touch and sharing your thoughts on that. We want to remind everyone the rest of the story with the Honky Tonk Man and Kevin Sullivan is now available at Patreon.com/studcast or TNStud.com. We'll have more information about that later in the program. But Ron, as we just said, we're going to begin with a couple of listener questions. This first one is from Brian Morse in Rockville, Maryland. Ron, what was your role with booking the NWA champions? I know Jim Barnett did scheduling, but did you have any say about the angles or finishes with the world champion? That's a great question. Uh, you know, and I, and I think this is one fans probably really wonder about. Uh, the the booking of the NWA champion is a, pretty, a unique, kind of a unique situation. There. You had so many territories underneath the banner of the NWA, Everybody wanted the champion as, as much as they could get him. Uh, uh, this I noticed he's talking here about Jim Barnett. It wasn't always Jim Barnett. It's usually the secretary within the NWA that was responsible for for the actual booking of the champion. Uh, Jim, let's say uh, during this time frame, he's probably working underneath uh, underneath uh, 
the, out of uh, St. Louis there, our boy Sam Muchnick. And Sam is the president, been president for a long time. Uh, Sam, Sam has a say in everything, uh, uh, who gets the champion and the, probably how often they get the champion. I don't think that Jim Barnett in this case is the guy that has all the clout. I think the clout is still with the president, uh, uh, with Muchnick. Uh, but Barnett kind of sits down, I, I assume, after talking with uh, with Sam, and they they together put their heads together and say, okay, we're, we're going to ha have him here and we're going to have him in that territory. Uh, everybody's situation is different when you when you own the territory and you got the champion. Uh, when you, and you knew pretty far in advance when you are going to get the champion, they would schedule that that out pretty pretty far. Sometimes you could you think the champion's going to be let's say uh, Dory Funk Jr. and it ends up being uh, Jack Briscoe as an example, and you have to change that part of it once the, you realize who the new champion may be. But so Barnett schedules these things out uh, back in the day, uh, and we're hit these probably talking here. I think maybe uh, early '80s, uh, maybe '85, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, and so I was a vice president in '85 of the NWA, and uh, vice president, like most vice presidents, didn't do too much. So I didn't have any say in any of this stuff, but. Once they schedule out the, the, the champion for, let's say, eight months in advance, and they, they know where they're going to send him. If you're a small territory, you're probably only going to get him two, three nights uh, at a time. Uh, you're in Florida or uh, North Carolina or a large territory with a lot of clout. You're going to get him maybe seven nights. You'll get him seven nights in a row. I know that somewhere in this time frame, they got to doing these little switches, these mini switches of the title, in which uh, they would allow some territories that had great guys like, say, Florida as an example, and you got Dusty's on top, and he's really over, and he's he's got a lot of attention based on him, and uh, and and they and they you, they don't want to put Dusty with uh, with the champion and Dusty not win the title, so. So they got to where they would work these deals and Dusty would actually win the title on a first night in and then somewhere during the course of that week they've got the champion. He would drop that belt as the guy was starting to leave. Um, it, was it was a nice little, little, little spot for, for good talent and for these territories that had an opportunity. I think they did it with uh, Tommy Rich as an example in the Georgia area and they did it with Dusty, I know. Uh, and probably around the country, several other people. I've noticed and looking at some of the records of the NWA champion, they they mention some of these little minor switches, and uh, they're not given the same consideration as being a, a long-term champion of any of any stature. But but they do have these little. They well, Tommy Rich won here, and the four nights later he lost, and Dusty won here, or whatever. Uh, you have. You had uh, the ability when you got the champion of basically figuring your own finishes um, and angles. Now, you didn't very often get to angle a world champion, but we angled uh, Flair one time, uh, and a, one it was a 
probably the biggest angle that we ever did uh, when I was a babyface and Bob Armstrong was a babyface and we were at uh, Southeastern. Uh, it We hadn't even, I don't believe, changed to Continental at that point. And I wanted to, we wanted to turn Bob heel and Bob had never been heel in his life. And, and I remember coming up with a finish for that match and it was in mobile and it was in the big building. There's two buildings in mobile on the same property. One is probably 5,000 seats. The other is about 17,000 or something. And we're in the 17,000 seat building and it's me and flair and uh, Bob Armstrong is the special referee. And we built up to that uh, by being an angle. We built up to that by the week before having a one-night tournament to wrestle, the, see who's going to wrestle Flair when he comes in. And Bob Armstrong and I uh, end up in the finals. Uh, Babyface match uh, in the finals of a tournament like that. That's just pretty much unheard of. And we actually have a great match. I mean, the people are really into it. Uh, probably never seen a babyface match, a total babyface match. And it ended up all the way through total babyface, not one punch, nothing but wrestling. And so then Bob comes the next week as part of this angle and says to, to me, he comes on television, I've got the shot. And he comes and says, Ron, you know, I just, I want to be in the ring. I, you know, I just want to be a part of it. You know, I'd love to be a referee. I, this, this, I'd love to be the referee. And so I was like, you know, on television, I'm saying, well, hell, absolutely, man. I mean, you're a great guy and you know, you've got, you got to, you're just as good or better than I am. And, you know, I just happened to beat you on a night when I really needed to. And so we work this angle. And uh, Flair comes in, he sits down. Now, we're in Mobile. Mobile is a very violent town. In uh, fact, the first night I ever worked there, I get into a riot and I get taken to jail. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's a nasty town. And I sit down with Bob and, and, and Flair, and I talk to them about the finish. And <laughs> I finish the finish, and there's no comment. They're both looking at each other. And, and I say, well, guys, uh, what's the deal? And uh, Bob says, Ron, he goes, we're going to get killed. <laughs> and I said, well, Bob, I said, you know, I'm going to talk to the cops and, you know, we're going to do this and we'll do that. And, you know, and but there and Flair was just as concerned as Bob. He's like, God, Ron, uh, geez, this is pretty nasty. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so I said, well, hell, guys, uh, we're going to turn this guy heel. Or we want it to be something decent or we just want to. Be, are we scared here or what? You know, oh, well, no, 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 no. You know, well, we're not scared. We're not scared, you know. So I said, well, let's do this damn thing. So it was a, it was an extremely hot finish. Uh, uh, I kind of thought we might have problems because it's mobile as well. But um, so it, it gives you an idea that, yes, you can kind of work on finishes and you can kind of work on angles. And, and we off of that turn – changed the direction of our territory uh i mean in a great way we we go from we're already doing great business is really really good but i mean that was the the best thing we ever did maybe in wrestling uh in my time frame the, the best angle we ever worked it just bob becomes a fabulous heel and uh i disappear for six months and we we set up me coming back six months, the night we get hurt, 
we start working on a tele two television programs that set up me coming back someday, and we don't know what day it's going to be or when it's going to be. And once we come back, once I come back in that situation, and he's got all this heat as a heel, it just rocks the territory. I mean, uh, we just uh, and and it puts the two families together uh, against each other. Uh, now Bob's got Brad; he's already working. Uh, he's got uh, Scott that's about to start, and Steve that's about to start, and it just uh, it puts us in the in a in a uh, now in a in a, a place where we can just uh, actually t take advantage of of all these members of these two families against each other and we do tremendous business the rest of the time I'm in in uh, in wrestling for the next that's a 5 year it's probably a 5 year program and it just really rocks and and I go back and forth I'm I'm babyface I'm going to turn back heel Bob's going to turn back babyface all these the things are going to happen after this starts but that's a long answer to the gentleman and uh, but it gives him an example of of what you can do and 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 how you can utilize that world champion once you get him in your in your company flair during the 80s is is most of the he's mostly the guy uh, had a lot of championship matches prior to that and and some finishes in which I actually won the title. Uh, uh, and then they coming back and take it away. But I guess that's the answer to Mr. Morse. I guess it's Morse uh, in Rockville, Maryland. Morse, I think Morse. that's the answer to him, the answer to his question. Uh, very good question. How did you pay the NWA champion, Ron, in terms of what percent of the gate did you give him? And also when you booked a wrestler who actually had a booking fee applied to someone else, whether it's Andre the Giant going to Vince McMahon Sr., or in the case of Jim Barnett, he booked various wrestlers at various times, including the NWA champion. What do you do then? Do you pay their booking fee to the wrestler, or do you actually send them a separate check? The booking fee always goes to the office. In the case of the NWA champion, the booking fee is always paid to St. Louis office. And uh, uh, so... Uh, and when you had Andre, that that was always sent to Vince Senior. Uh, it never went through Andre. Uh, and then you had to kind of sit when you're doing the payoff on a World Championship night. I always paid around thirty percent. And when you when you've got that figure, you you want everybody to make money, but you've got to pay your champion obviously better. So you know the champion is going to get a, a pretty good piece of that pie. Uh, and I like to pay those champions very well because they, for two reasons. One reason is is they they go out there and where they work for you hard. They're glad to be there when they come into your territory. Uh, and secondly, you just they speak well of you. And I thought that was important. You know, they go everywhere. They know everybody. You don't want the world champion knocking you and saying, this guy don't pay or he, he just doesn't, you know. So same thing with Andre. I always paid Andre very well because he's another guy who has great rapport in the in the business. And, and wherever he goes, he's re admired and respected. And people put a lot of stock into what he says about other people and other promoters, other territories. So then these are two key situations, your NWA champion and Andre. And those are basically the only guys I ever dealt with in which I had to pay. I got talent from time to time in Knoxville. When I started running my first shows in the Coliseum there, I remember talking to Jim Crockett 
And uh, he sent me, uh, Ric Flair and Kim Patera, both young guys at that point. I think this is probably 1975. Uh, and you take care of those boys well. Uh, you, If you borrow somebody from another territory or somebody wants to come and work for you, uh, it's going to benefit you down the road to pay to pay well because they're going to always talk well about you. And when they do, other guys pay attention to it to to it and uh and they they won't come they want to be a part of your deal when you see these short-term champions giant baba bought a couple title runs in japan obviously tommy rich in georgia dusty got a few title runs that were short-term kerry von eric in 84 after his brother dies gets a short-term title run when you see all of these at any point do you say hey wait a minute i paid my dues every year i'm a good promoter i've got good crowds I want a championship run. I mean, Jerry Jarrett quit the NWA because of that. He ended up working with Vern because he thought he had a better chance of getting the championship when there's only one guy voting on it. What do right. you do, though, when you see these other short-term champions and they're in surrounding territories? Do you get to the point where you call up and you say you want one too, or are you content not having a champion of your own? I I, I never I never ask. Uh, you know, I know probably if I had have asked, they they would have probably accommodated me. And, you know, they would have done it with me probably because I think at one point in 73, 74, they were maybe thinking about me being the big man. And uh, so if I had asked and said, hey, guys, I'd like to do it with just me. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to do it with Bob Armstrong. There's another guy that certainly is qualified to have beat the world champion on any given night. Uh, it could have been done if I had asked, but I just, I kind of like the idea of the champion being the champion and then nobody can beat him. And, uh, you know, when they beat him, uh, I think it takes a little bit of the luster off for your champion. And so, the next time he comes back, they, but at the same time, somebody has beaten him. So fans always say, well, hell, Dusty beat him here. You know, uh, maybe uh, somebody else in this territory is going to, is going to beat him too. And, and say, so they want to come see the match. I guess it's uh six, one half dozen, the other, but I, I never felt really comfortable with asking, uh, Hey, can I do that here? Uh, so I never did. Let's get our second question here, Ron. This one's from Thomas Redding in Buffalo, New York. Your account of the plane wreck that took the life of Bobby Shane was very detailed and emotional. What can you tell us about the plane crash with Ric Flair, Johnny Valentine, and others in North Carolina in 1975? Well, this is the question, you know, when uh, when you talked to me last week, whereas we were doing the program, and, and this was going to be one of those questions, I was like... This is this takes a little time. I, I want to do this uh, in a detailed manner. And God, these these plane wrecks are emotional. I mean, uh, I, I'm hoping I can convey that when I tell these stories. But this this is a just a horrible one here, and the fact that it it puts a couple of greats out of out of the business forever. And uh, and and in the way this happens, so. So I'm just going to go, I'm just going to jump into it here. And there's no way to, to set this up. I'm just going to start with, uh, you know, this wreck takes place in October of 1975, October 4th of 1975. Uh, and they run in a town out of Charlotte. Uh, they run in Wilmington. 
And I've never worked in Charlotte, in that territory, in Mid-Atlantic. And I hate to say that, uh, but I never actually worked in Mid-Atlantic. Uh, but I assume that, uh, you know, it's a little distance between North, between Charlotte and Wilmington and that part of the country there is, is they got some pretty long trips there. So they're, they're going to fly. Some guys are going to fly. And this is a strange situation. There's a couple of guys on this plane that not supposed to be there that, that end up in the involved in something that, that they could have just, if they had said, no, I don't want to get on there. Uh, that their lives would have been changed dramatically. Uh, so October of 75, uh, six passengers going to load up in, in Charlotte. And it's a Cessna 310. Now, I have flown on these Cessna 310s. These are pretty nice planes. And, and they're made for hauling uh, six to seven guys. But, you know, these are big guys. Wrestlers are not like the normal person that's going to fly. And when you get six wrestlers or on a plane, you're you're going you're to have a lot of weight there. Uh, and these six guys, you got Ric Flair. You've got Johnny Valentine. I know kind of what happened when Johnny went there because this is just pretty much after the run I have with Johnny in Florida in 74 and 70, late 73, early 74. Uh, Johnny's at the top of his game, in my opinion. He's really, really a talent. Uh, he's always been a talent, but now he's really a phenomenal talent. Uh, Tim Woods is on this plane. Tim Woods is in Florida during the time frame that we're talking about here in 72. And, uh, Tim's a great worker, obviously. Bobby Bruggers. Uh, Bobby Bruggers, I know not that much about, but I know he did play play football. Uh, he played actually with the Dolphins with uh, Wahoo, and Wahoo kind of got him kicked off on the idea of getting in the wrestling business. And he goes and trains in Ganya's territory, which is a fabulous training center. I mean, that you don't get any better than that. You get the flares out of there. You just get God. You, it's amazing the people that come from Ganya's Ganya's uh, territory if you train there uh billy robinson had a lot of work did a lot of work with uh with bugger Bruggers. uh billy robinson's uh, not just a great worker he's a he's a shooter he he can get it done uh and so when you got that type of training you're going to be a great wrestler Bruggers is off to a fabulous start here and he's tag team champions with paul jones uh in 74, they won the title in uh, in the Mid-Atlantic area there. And so, Bruggers is headed into a bright future, no doubt about that. Uh, you got David Crockett on the plane. Uh, his brother, Jim Crockett Jr., is supposed to be on the plane, and he's he's got sick. He's sick. So, uh, he he turns things. He gives uh, David a call, and he says, you know, obviously, I can't go and can't make the town tonight. Maybe he's checking up, uh, getting the money, whatever reason he was going. And his brother says, okay, well, I'll I'll take your your, your seat. Uh, so there's a few guys scheduled to go on here. I think uh, Jim Crockett uh, talks to Bobby Bruggers and, and says, hey, there's an empty seat on this plane. Would you like to fly? So Bruggers is going to say, yeah, I'll take one of those seats. And here's David Crockett, who's not scheduled to be on there. It's supposed to be his brother. And David's going to get on that plane as well. Uh, and then obviously you have the pilot on there. Uh, they're flying, as I said, from Charlotte to Wilmington. And uh, 
There and in the case with many many small plane wrecks, uh, and, and especially these that involve racers, the the plane is overloaded. Like I was saying earlier, you've got guys that weigh an average around 250 pounds, and they've got bags with them, and those bags weigh 30 to 50 pounds, depending on whether you got a wrestling belt in there. If you're a champion, you've got a belt in your bag, and that bag's going to weigh probably 50 pounds uh, when you start calculating the weight of that belt along with it. And so you start calculating these. You made you got six guys on there. Uh, David Crockett. I mean, uh, David's not a big guy, uh, but everybody else is a wrestler. And so those guys are going to probably average uh, 280, 300 pounds each with the bags and stuff. So there are there's a lot of weight on here, and and at least two of the guys on this plane are champions. So I would assume they do have those belts, and uh, and so. So the the plane is overloaded, uh, and I've flown on a lot of these planes uh, out of Florida in the day when we used to go and rent them, and and we'd show up at the little tiny airport out there in Tampa, and those pilots would <laughs> look at us, and and uh, they would you could see them shaking their head like, whoa, geez, these guys are really big, you know, and uh, how how's this going to work? So this guy, he, what happens here is, uh, I've talked to, to in depth with Rick on this many times. Flair and I talked about this wreck quite a few times. And, you know, well, I'm going to do this to the best of my knowledge here. And, uh, and, and I'm going to tell as, uh, as much as I can of what happened. And, um, and there's a lot of different versions about this. I'm sure everybody's probably sees this wreck a little differently, but, uh, so when they get there and they're getting ready to load onto the plane, the uh, pilot wants to put Flair up in the co-pilot seat in the right front seat of the plane. And yeah, there you have a second steering column and you've got the brakes. You can fly the plane from that position. And, and Flair doesn't want to be up there in that front seat. And I think there's a little discussion. Flair says, you know, I, I told him, you know, hey, I, hey, somebody else want to sit here. I really don't want to. Uh, finally, Johnny Valentine ends up taking that seat. And and knowing Johnny, Johnny's the type of guy, he's very soft-spoken. He doesn't say too much. Uh, there's probably a two-minute discussion maybe about who's going to sit in that seat. And knowing Johnny, he just says, guys, I'll sit up there. He, he, he's, a, he's a rare, rare individual, Johnny. So he takes this seat. Uh, and, that, and this is going to – this will affect both of those guys, Flair and Valentine. This small little switch of seating in the plane is going to, to, to affect their lives forever after this after this flight uh, so the flight begins with in my opinion two critical pilot errors first of all you not only look at your plane and and start to figure out what kind of weight you have on your plane but you've got to just as importantly distribute the weight properly in a small plane big jets doesn't make any difference they're so large uh, you can have a lot of weighty passengers on one side, and it's not going to affect it. But you got a small plane, you have to kind of situate people according to their weight. And uh, you make that decision, obviously, before takeoff. Uh, you distribute the weight. Uh, this pilot does not distribute the weight before takeoff. And he didn't really calculate that he's got he's got an over, overloaded aircraft here. Uh, so... 
when he starts to take off, uh, and, and uh, Rick tells me this, that and they don't know guys in the plane. When you're not flying a plane and you're in a you're in a small plane, you don't get that. Uh, you know, like you, the stewardess or whatever says, "They well, we're about to take off, and here's what's going to happen." And you pull your put your seats upright, and you get that little thing. Well, there's no there's no stewardess on these planes, so you know nobody's saying anything to you when you get ready to go, and. So when they start to take off, the pilot starts to take off, I think he realizes taxiing down that runway that he's really overloaded here and he's going to have some problem. It could have happened when he was just about to, wheels about to leave the tarmac and he realizes, well, boy, I got no lift here. You know, how am I going to get this thing up? For whatever reason, he makes a horrible decision to jettison some fuel in order to lighten the plane's load. And when that happens, that's a critical part of part of this whole thing that uh, is going to make a big, big difference. So they take off. He jettisons some fuel. Now, you know, Rick probably doesn't even know, uh, and the rest and the guys on the plane doesn't even know that he's doing this. Uh, I'd assume that from wing tanks, uh, yeah, and I don't know that much about small planes, but I do know that uh, they have tank, tank, extra auxiliary tanks in the wings and uh, there's certain other places. And so they start, uh, as they get down there pretty close to Wilmington and they start crossing the Cape Fear River, which is down in that area, the, the engine begins to sputter. And... Uh, the plane starts dropping. I, I I read somewhere where Tim Woods, his version of it, and Tim says the plane starts to drop like a rock. Uh, and he thought, basically, we're going to crash right now. We're going down. And uh, so the pilot is a Vietnam veteran. His name is Joseph Farkas. Uh, he's been obviously flying planes for a long, long time. And so he panics at this point. He's, he's having a real problem here, uh, he sees. And Johnny's sitting up front, and he looks at the gas gauge, and he actually tells the pilot, he goes, uh, it looks like we're out of gas. And uh, and then I think that's the first time that uh, that Mr. Farkas here realizes that, oh, boy, we're, we're in big trouble. Uh, so according to uh, what Tim Woods says, uh, the plane starts to sputter, and then it starts to drop. And, and then it starts into a little spin. Uh, when the plane starts into a spin, the pilot, uh, according to what Rick tells me, the pilot just, he, he just, he, he panics. He just starts screaming and, uh, and no, and Johnny reaches over and this I find to be funny because when Johnny Valentine slaps you, uh, you, you know, you might, you might be half knocked out, but, uh, Johnny reaches over and slaps the pilot. And, you know, and the pilot kind of recovers a little bit. He's like, gets his sensibility back to him. And he realizes that hey, I got to try to fly this thing, you know. I, so he pulls it out of this spin and they kind of level off, but they're still sputtering with the engine and they get within sight of the airport. And this to me is probably the most horrible moment of all and Flair says to me, you know, he says, Ron, what he said, we could see the end of the runway. 
And he said, between us and the end of the runway, there's a couple of big tall pine trees, and then there's a railroad embankment. And he says, engine is sputtering, and uh, we've got it leveled off, and, and we're now beginning to have some hope that we're about going to make it. Uh, but what happens is they are losing altitude, and he's just and he's slowing the plane dramatically because he, if they crash, you don't want to have a whole lot of airspeed there where you're just definitely going to all get killed. So the pilot's doing the best he can to just make it to over this railroad embankment, and he'd be at the base of the runway. He might land in the grass, but it'd be a heck of a lot better than doing what happens to them. They can't quite make it over that railroad embankment. Uh, and I can only imagine being on that plane and being able to see what's about to happen and just realizing that, that you're the, the, just how vulnerable you are and having no idea what this is all going to amount to. Anyway, they clip the top of those little pine trees. That slows them down just a little bit more, and then they can't make it across the railroad embankment, and when they crash, they crash into that railroad embankment. Uh, it's really a... And then what happens is is all the seats break loose uh, because they're all on hooks on the in based into the into the bottom of the plane, and those seats break loose and they all cascade forward one on top of another, and this is where you get the horrible injuries that they're going to have out of this plane wreck is because they don't get ejected, no one gets ejected from the plane but they just end up piling up body on top of body, and those in the front of the plane are more seriously injured, obviously, than those in the back of the plane, simply because those seats are going to all be ripped from their holding points and just cascaded up and toward the front of the plane. Uh, the pilot, the pilot's gravely injured in the, in the wreck. Uh, he's in the hospital for two, three weeks, and he dies. He he never recovers from the accident. And uh, I don't know that he ever gets out of the hospital. But I know he is the only person on the plane that dies. Uh, David Crockett, a smaller guy, I think, toward the back of the plane, uh, in a very good spot for this particular wreck. Uh, he's going to be sitting on the top of the pile, basically, in that side of that plane, rather than the bottom end. So he ends up with a dislocated shoulder. He ends up with some facial cuts, and he he loses some teeth. Uh, he has his injuries are are not good, obviously, but gosh, compared to the rest, and 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 he's he's a lucky. He's very very lucky. Um, Bobby Bruggers receives a broken back. Uh, he has rods inserted into his back in the hospital. He actually walks out of the hospital. This to me is pretty amazing. He actually walked out of the hospital three weeks later, and he could have returned to the ring. He could have gotten past his injuries, uh, now, but he's got the rods in his back, and for whatever reason, he decides he's never going to wrestle again. He never returns to wrestling. Uh, Tim Woods, he's got cracked and bruised ribs. He's got a concussion. He has a compression fracture of the back. And Tim's going to Tim's going to return to the sport. He's going to continue to wrestle. Uh, Rick Flair is 
really got, in my opinion, the horrible, horrible injuries. He's got a broken back in three places, and he's told in the hospital that he's never going to wrestle again. Uh, and, you know, this just says everything about Ric Flair. I mean, uh, he could have done what Bobby did and just said, you know, that's it for me. I, I'm not going to do it anymore. But uh, he not only returns to wrestling, but he goes on to become the world champion. And uh, and everybody knows around the world uh, in wrestling that the, the rest, of his, rest is history there. I mean, he just shows a remarkable uh, desire to, to be a wrestler and to continue with what he was in the process of doing. He was headed there, and I think he knew it. And he did not want to lose that opportunity, did not want to give up. And, and so he, he comes back to wrestling and he becomes world champion and, and uh, one of the greatest at that. Uh, Johnny Valentine, who, gosh, when I think of Johnny, I love Johnny Valentine. He's just like a daddy to me. And he, Johnny gets a broken back. And, and what really gets Johnny is the bone fragments from his spine uh, they wedge into his spine, these bone fragments as his back is breaking, I guess. Uh, it's horrible to even talk about it. The bone fragments, they wedge into his spine, and, and he's paralyzed uh, from waist down for the rest of his life. Uh, and I've, I've heard stories uh, that Johnny's wife says that he never, ever complained. Uh, never once did he say, boy, what a horrible thing happened, and then why did it happen? And knowing Johnny, that's exactly like Johnny is. So, you know, I can see Johnny handling it like a man. And, uh, and what a horrible way to end your career. He's on top of his game. He's He's... And he, and he is a most unusual wrestler maybe that's ever been. Uh, his style is totally unique. There was never another Johnny Valentine. His son, obviously, is as close as he probably anybody was going to get. But Greg never had what his dad had. Uh, Johnny just had this style that was just fabulous, just amazing. And so Johnny goes... And he obviously hangs it up and he goes home to Texas. And now I hear one other story. I just want to cover this right before we leave this topic uh, that I know that WCW has has some type of a, a, a thing in New York in which, uh, you know, you they, they have a big thing for Johnny basically, and then trying to get him some money. And, and so Johnny and his wife, they fly from Texas uh, to New York for this event. And one of the guys, one of the younger guys at WCW goes to, to introduce himself to Johnny. And this is typical Johnny Valentine here. Uh, he asks him and he bends over because Johnny's in a wheelchair. And he bends over and he, he says, uh, Mr. Valentine, uh, then this is words that I was told that were said. He says, Mr. Valentine, he goes, uh, I hear that when you were at your best and, and, and you were doing your thing, that, that when you hit guys, you hit them so hard that they could hear it in the parking lot. And uh, Johnny, didn't, uh, Johnny didn't have any comment. And, and so, but the, the guy that continues and he goes, you know, just, uh, just how did you do that? 
how did you hit them so hard? And Johnny reaches up and grabs him by the hair of the head uh, and drags him forward, to, bends him over in front of him. He's sitting in a chair, and he picks up that big right arm, man, and he hammers this guy in the, across the back. And, he's, and, and the guy goes face first onto the concrete right down at his feet in a wheelchair. He's in a wheelchair. He hits him hard enough in a wheelchair that the guy goes face first on the, on the concrete and and kind of moans and this oh like whoa god that oh and uh johnny goes you know this place is this business is no place for wussies that's what he says to him <laughs> i just uh once i heard that story man it just makes me it's exactly what johnny valentine was all about uh so this is my, you know, this is kind of what happened in this this horrible wreck. And, and if we lose one of the greatest of all time, Johnny Valentine, uh, Bob Bruggers, I, I don't know that much about him, but probably he's he's very talented if he's a, in the, a mid-Atlantic tag team champion and Paul Jones and he are the champ, title holders. He's got a great future. Uh, it had not been for Flair being the type of guy he is and having that desire to just keep going and to, to stay in it uh we would have lost him as well uh tim woods could have quit too probably uh tim tim's a great guy and he got a lot of heart and he went on uh so that's basically it uh, it it was devastating and just like the one that cost us bobby shane that that wreck uh, this one doesn't cost us any wrestlers lives but it sure it sure cost the co cost the company of Mid Atlantic uh, a lot of a lot of uh, they've got things going really cranked and doing fantastic business, and these guys these these poor guys that end up like Johnny did, it's just it's almost unimaginable. It's uh, scary, and when you've done as many plane rides as I have, and these small planes, I I just thank the good Lord that. Then I never got there, and and I was probably very close on many occasions. Uh, one of those uh, hairy little flights into West Virginia at night and uh, foggy night with Ron Wright and him not even being uh, actually instrument rated quality uh, passed on instrument rated rating. Uh, you know, could happen to me. So I just thank the good Lord for taking care of me and not getting me into one of these. Two great questions, Ron, but we can only have one winner. Who do you pick? Uh, I, I've got to pick the 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 this the Buffalo, New York guy. Uh, I got to I got to take this. Yes, I got to got to take the plane the plane crash. Uh, it's a great question. It only makes sense after you hear the Bobby Shane Bobby Shane wreck uh, to want to hear how this one happened. And I hope I've explained it fairly well. Uh, and it's just it's it's a heartbreaking it's it to all wrestlers i think when they got news of this one just like the one in tampa the one in tampa really affected me because bobby shane died and i had been in tampa for so many years it was like home to me and i i knew those guys so well all of those guys on that plane i had been with so many many times and some of them in more than one territory and it just it really affected me and but this one with johnny i could like i said johnny was like a daddy to me uh he really took me under his wing and 
I never forget uh, the, what he taught me and how much I learned from his ability and what he does in the ring and his uniqueness in the ring. Uh, it's just a sad thing. Uh, great question. Both these are great questions, and uh, I, I believe I'm going to take the gentleman out of New York. We will be right back with the arrival of two superstars from the AWA, Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens, into the Florida Territory. But first, listen to this. Thanks to the constantly growing fan base and patrons for StudCast and Super StudCast around the world, records fall with every new release. The Stud works hard for all of his fans with seven hours of exciting new content each month. The tremendous story of the Welch family and its effect on the history of professional wrestling is illustrated with magnificent stories on each free weekly StudCast at TNStud.com and all podcast outlets. Patrons enjoy the three-hour deep dives into the wonderful wrestling history that comes once a month from one of America's best storytellers, the Tennessee Stud. Patrons can now listen to the third hour of Super Studcast number 8 with the Honky Talk Man and Kevin Sullivan live at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. Yep, only $2.99. That is less than $1 per hour. You choose how to ride with the stud, but we hope you'll continue to always saddle up. And now, back to Studcast number 59 with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and Brian Last. There you hear it out now. The rest of the story, Honky Talk Man and Kevin Sullivan, and of course, the next Super Studcast will be coming at you very, very soon. But check it out. We've heard rave reviews from people about the Honky Talk Man and Kevin Sullivan, the Super Studcast, and the rest of the story, both available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only. Two ninety nine. Check that out. We'll have more information at the end of the show. Plus, don't forget at tnstud.com, you can go to the stud store and get some official Tennessee stud merchandise. We'll have more information about that coming up at the end of the program. But, Ron, we teased it before the break. We're going back to Florida, 1972. Two of the great workers of that era, of any era, are entering Florida, and that's Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens. Yes, sir. And and uh, you pretty well uh, laid the foundation, man. They are they are superstars uh, by anybody's account. Uh, no matter where they ever went, they were always the top talent. Uh, Ray Stevens goes way back to my dad's time. He actually starts in in the old Gulf Coast uh, territory way back in the fifties, the early fifties, with my dad. As a young guy, he was a grinder. I remember my dad talking to me about Stevens. I I was only six years old in that time frame. That wasn't able to assess talent or whatever. And I don't remember him very much from that time frame, but dad was telling me that this guy was going to be great. And he went on. Obviously, he was probably over more in San Francisco than anybody or any place he ever went. And he did fabulous business out there in San Francisco for many, many years. Nick Bockwinkle is another dude that uh, he's, he's from my starting days in Georgia in 1970. Nick is the top dog there. He is, he is everything to me a world champion in any sport should be. And he just represents the sport so well. Uh, a fabulous, fabulous talent. 
both these guys, single matches. Uh, and when you put these two together, it, it, you can't hardly imagine having a better team to work with because they're, they're so good at what they do and they just mesh really well as it. And I'd never worked with them as a tag team. They come in in the early part of July, 1972. And I'm, I'm going to end up really lucky here. I'm going to get to work with these guys seven times, uh, seven times. They're going to be there for about six weeks. I'm going to have seven opportunities to work in tag matches with them. And, and I'm going to actually have one single match with uh, Nick Bockwinkle, which we'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, I worked with them seven times in tag matches and with different partners pretty much every time. Uh, twice I'm going to work with them in Miami with Hiro, Hiro Matsuda as my partner. Another great, great wrestler. Fabulous matches we have. Uh, Johnny Case, uh, I worked with him in Miami uh, with these guys and Johnny Case in Miami as a partner. I worked one time with Tim Woods as a partner. Just We just finished talking about Tim. He's a big star there in in, uh, in Florida at this point. Uh, I work with them, and that's in a Tampa match. I work on TV with them uh, with Johnny Walker. And Johnny Walker now, at this point, is not wearing a mask, uh, but he is on his way very soon here to becoming Wrestling 2. And it's really amazing. Kind of Johnny's a great story in itself. Johnny's a fabulous worker, been around a long time. He's worked there as the grappler in this in the Florida territory, and now his mask is gone. And he's basically working his way out of the territory, but he's going to Atlanta. And the rest of that is history. When he puts that mask on again and he becomes Mr. Wrestling number two, he Johnny Walker finds himself. Uh, he's a star that just never made it to being a star. And at an older age than most guys ever get there, Johnny Walker is going to become that ma that major star that he probably should have always been the, once he dons that mask and, and becomes Mr. Wrestling number two. So I work with him on TV, Johnny and I. And then I have an opportunity to work partners with Jack Briscoe against these two guys. Gosh, I it's 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 hard to. I think it's maybe the one of the greatest matches I was ever in in my life. I mean, you, you got three guys. I don't. I don't. I have to discount myself here. I'm in the ring with three fabulous superstars. Uh, two of them that are going to be world champions. And uh, Ray Stevens, who, who deserved to be world champion, if there ever was anybody that did. And I'm the young guy two years in, in the ring with these three. It's just, it, it's, it, it's humbling for me as a young guy. I just, uh, I'm just hoping not to do something wrong in there, hurt somebody or, or do something that, that uh, I'm going to be sorry that I screwed up. And I'm just, uh, it's a fabulous opportunity. And then on the very last night that that uh, they are there, that Bachwinkle and Stevens are there and they're going home, uh, I work with Rob. Uh, Rob comes in and we work with uh, Bachwinkle and Stevens for the Florida Tag Team Championship. They're champions in the, to, at this point. And uh, well, we have a fabulous match. Uh, gosh, those guys are just so good at leading matches it's so easy and and 
they just tear the house down every night they're there. And they're coming out of Vince's ter- I mean, uh, out of Vern's territory up north there in uh, Minnesota. And they're going back to Minnesota. And, and they, uh, they just like a lot of guys that happen to be because you're in Florida. You get them to come in there and they'll stay a month and they'll just, they want to hang around. Normally it's more winter than summer. These guys pick the summer. I don't know why they want to come in the summer rather than the winter. Uh, especially if you're in Minnesota, I can't imagine why you'd want to spend your winter in Minnesota if you could come to spend some time in Florida that time of year, but they're there nonetheless in the summer and just fabulous, fabulous talents where whoever was lucky enough to get in the ring with those guys is going to learn something. And then, like I said, I get one single match with Nick and it's an experience for me. Nick took a real liking to me in 1970 when I started in Georgia and my brother as well. And Nick uh, would take us after matches into the dressing room with just the three of us. And sometimes if it was a single match, he would take me by myself. He would watch every match we had, the entire match. And he would tell me, uh, he would give me 30 things that I could do better than in that match. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't simulate all that in my mind, but I could, I, I really paid a lot of attention to it. And gosh, he just, he helped me so much. And that, that early that first year, now he comes back. It's le- it's about two years later or a year and a half later that we're in the ring together again. And I remember after this match in Tampa, we work in Tampa, uh, he takes me in the room by myself as always. And, you know, and, and he, he starts telling me things, but he gives me a great compliment at the end. He says, Ron, he goes, uh, it's amazing what you've done in the last year. He says, you're, you're going to be big. You're going to be big time in the game. And uh, you just need to stick with it, and uh, and 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 just uh, try to focus on uh, on the little things that you're doing wrong. He was so fabulous in his details about. He would tell me things like, he would say, "Ron, take a headlock on me," um, and he say, "See where your foot is. Your your foot's turned at an angle out to the left." He goes, you need to take that foot and turn it two inches more to the right, your toe. And and I would go, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, why? Why? And he goes, well, he says, if you're going to shoot me in the ropes and I've got a headlock on you and you're going to shoot me in the ropes, he goes, I'm liable to trip over that toe right there. I'll lose my balance or whatever. That's how fantastic he was as at, at teaching and training uh, the details of, of how to make things work. He used to say, in, when I first started in 1970, he'd say, you're like a turnstile. And I'd say, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, when you go through a turnstile to get into an event, how, the, how it just kind of rotates, the arm rotates around. He goes, when I hit you, he says, I have to go and unravel you before I can do it again. <laughs> I mean, there was little things like that that just really impressed me with what a fabulous worker he was. And he did so much to help me in my career. I, I just, I love him too. He's just another one of those guys that I have a great, great respect for. There are several names that always come up whenever you hear wrestlers from the 60s or 70s talk about the best workers of their era. 
A lot of guys will say Red Bastine. A lot of guys will say Ray Stevens. So you actually got to work with him. Was he as good as people say? Oh, he was. Yes, he was every bit as good as he said. And this is my first opportunity uh, when I'm talking about these matches in 72 to work with Ray. And I've heard all these stories, even far back as, as to my dad's day in the 50s, in which Ray is just breaking in and uh, the young guy. And it, it's just phenomenal. I mean, you know, these guys, they, they call great spots. They just they call a great match. Uh, they work holes. Uh, they, they, they do everything that you would expect, uh, two great guys like this to, to be able to do in the ring. And Ray took fabulous bumps. Uh, I think that was his, he was, he, he was his big, his, his big thing. Uh, I think he do the old, uh, the, he might've been the originator of the bump that flair make famous where you would shoot him into the ropes and he would do the upside down and go over the top rope and out onto the floor. I believe that probably came from Ray and, uh, you know, Ray was just fabulous. Uh, Bachwinkle, Bachwinkle was more a technician and a really mind. It was all mind with uh, Nick, uh, but with Ray, it was it was bumps. It was being able to do these fantastic bumps, and you know, he'd just say, "Hey, shoot me in, shoot me in a turnbuckle." And, you know, he'd just shoot him in and, and he don't take a regular shot in the turnbuckle and just hits with his back in there. He's going to do the upside down. He's going to go over the damn top rope and over the post and out into the floor. It's like, wow, look what I did. You know, I mean, he make you look like a star. And uh, that's the great thing about super workers. Super workers have a way not just to get themselves over. They can get whoever they're working with over too. After Bockwinkle and Stevens leave, where does that leave you? What are you up to at this point in your career? Well, I'm I'm being pushed. I'm I, I, like I said, I get seven opportunities to work with these two quality guys, and I'm not I'm working a lot of single matches, and and they stick me with these great partners, Hero and uh, Tim Woods and Jack Briscoe and Johnny Walker, and I mean, like, wow, they they're starting to see something in me that I don't know that I'm seeing myself. Uh, and they're giving me a good push. Uh, they, lots of things are going on here at this point. Uh, the business is really picking up in Florida. They've had these guarantees there now for a while, and they're just filling this territory with quality talent, which is what you got to do in order to draw money. It's it, and they've they've got things moving in that direction. Uh, they're going to start giving me some title shots. First time ever for me. I'll get title shots at the Southern Heavyweight Championship. I'll get uh, Florida Heavyweight Championship matches. Uh, one of these is going to be in Vero Beach, a uh, little town uh, just south of Daytona, between Daytona and West Palm Beach, uh, that I'm running. It's my town. Uh, they asking me to spend more time with other towns. So one of them, I run this Vero Beach, uh, and I'd like I want to talk about this next week because there's quite a bit of a story here with Vero Beach. But Vero Beach is going to be the biggest spot show that Florida Territory ever runs. Uh, and I go find a high school gym for the first time. That's not been done either. Uh, I'm out there hustling, trying to find the biggest building I can. I want to just set records, and every time I have a spot show or they let me run something, it's going to do very well. So 
uh, Vero Beach. I'll talk some about that next week. Uh, but they they give me basically the responsibility of running Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Fort Lauderdale's been run for many, many years. It's in the National Guard Armory. It's always been in the Armory. And they tell me, Eddie says, Ron, I, I, you're doing great. Uh, these towns, your little smart shows you run, they're doing fabulous. Uh, you're down there in Fort Lauderdale anyway on Fridays because you live in West Palm and we don't want to run you to Tallahassee from West Palm, which is, that's a ridiculously long distance for me. So he says, we want you to do something bigger for us in Lauderdale. We're selling out down there and you're working on top quite a bit. He says, uh, see what you can come up with. So I find a, a bigger place for them to operate in. Uh, we moved from the armory, which it's been there for many, many years, into a place called Pirate's World. It's a big amusement park that has a huge building with a roof on it. Uh, it's outside, but it's three times, four times larger than the armory. We can put uh, four or 5,000 people in there. So all of a sudden, we start to draw a lot more money. We start to do do very, very well um, uh, in Lauderdale. As, uh, for sure, we're drawing record business there in Lauderdale. Uh, back to some of these title matches, I get uh, two Southern title matches during this time frame with Bob Orton Sr. That's the Zodiac. He was called the Zodiac at that time. Uh, and uh, Woods and Zodiac are working a program during this time frame, and they work a mask versus hair match. Wood puts his hair hair up against uh, Zodiac's mask, and uh, he beats Orton Sr. Orton Sr. pulls the mask off and starts stays. He doesn't leave. And a lot of times when you lose that mask, you normally leave. He stays and wrestles as Bob Orton Sr. and stays in the territory for a considerable length of time afterward. Uh, Woods is going to beat him for the title in Tampa in August of 72. And a week later, I'm going to wrestle Woods in Fort Myers for the Southern title. And I'm going to, it's a baby face match. Uh, Woods is a baby face. I'm a baby face. So we have a tremendous baby face match. And during the match, uh, I hit him with a tackle and, and he, he gets hurt. He, he can't get up. He goes down and, uh, and uh, he's he's hurt, and I'm like, gee, I feel horrible. And and the referee doesn't know what to do. He counts him out, and and he raises my hand, and so I'm basically champion. But I, you know, so I get on the microphone and I say, you know, I I don't want to win my first championship like this. You know, I uh, he's hurt, and you know, and I and I, and I I'm not going to, to accept the title. I gave the belt. I put the belt. I actually, he's still on the mat, and I gave the belt back to him. Just gave, put it in his lap, and left the ring. Uh, so you know, I, that hasn't been my first opportunity to win a title, but I basically don't take the title when I have an opportunity to win it. So, but I'm getting these title shots, and I'm beginning to to wrestle the big dogs now. I'm wrestling the guys on top. Uh, this happens to be in Fort Myers. It's not in a major city yet. But I can kind of see that my career has taken off a little bit. Uh, uh, one other thing I'd like to, you know, to back to Fort Lauderdale for a, for a little bit. And I think we talked about uh, Fort Pierce and uh, Mac, the guy that worked for me and helped me. Yeah, Mac is 
So, Mac is in Fort Lauderdale another night. Here's another busted eye story. I got He's got so many of them, I got to get them in here, right? And this one, uh, we're in the old armory there, and the armory has bleachers on both sides. But you can walk underneath those bleachers. You have to lower your head, obviously. I can't walk underneath them because I'm tall, but Mac's not as tall as I am. But I, I send Mac, I said, Mac, can you go get me some water? And there's, there's no water fountains. There's nothing in these armories. They're very basic places. And he goes, and he's. I see him. I look under the, the bleachers, and he's coming down the wall at the highest level of bleachers, and he's ducking under these little, there's there's a places where the hinges uh, that, that fold this bleacher in and out of the wall stick down in little points. And he's, I see him ducking underneath these little hinges, uh, metal hinges, and he gets real close. He's a, he reaches out, he's close enough, he reaches out, and he's got the water in his hand. And he says, here's the water, Ron. And when I reach for it, he, st- he raises his head when he should have lowered it, and he sticks his face right into one of those metal hinges just above his eye where he gets all these cuts at. And I see it happen. Bang, right there. Oh, God. oh boy. And uh, our blood starts running down his face, and and he's like, "Oh, Ron, you got another butterfly." So it becomes a joke. Now it's becoming a regular joke for us. These busted eyes that he gets. Uh, so we move out the next week out of the army into this pirate's world, and he goes down. He does whatever I need him to do. He'll sell the tickets. He can referee if he had to. Uh, he watches and does security type of deals. Uh, he just kind of, he's lo- trying to learn the business and he's wanting to go with me. He is going to go with me to Knoxville later on. The reason I keep talking about Mac is because not only is he going to go, he's going to be responsible for me getting a chance to go to Knoxville and own my own business. Uh, he's a very important person for me at this point. But we go out to the Pirate's World. First night we're out there, and it's lit up underneath the building, but in the parking lot, there's no lights. So I see him come around. the. There's a fence there, and he comes around the side of the fence, and he's got two boys uh, by the back of the neck. And he and he's, he's not, he doesn't have a lot of decorum sometimes. Uh, he's kind of jerking him a little bit and he's cussing him. What do y'all do? You can't get in here for free. I hear him talking to him. Uh, you can't do that. And he gets them to the gate there and he just kind of shoves them to, out into the parking lot and it's dark out there and they go off about you till you can't see them. And I, I, he doesn't know I'm watching and I'm a little ways away. I can hear the conversation and they're saying, where gets you? And they're hollering at him. And I see him standing there, and he's saying, yeah, you better than whatever. He's jawing at him. And then all of a sudden, I hear this pow. And I see him reach up and grab his head, and he bends over forward. And I go, oh, my. <laughs> I go, what? what? They must have thrown a rock or something. <laughs> so they bust him with a rock. So I go in the dressing room because <laughs> I know what's coming. And then a couple of minutes later, there's a knock at the dressing room door, and he goes, uh, "Is Ron there?" And I go, <laughs> "He goes, you know, he's got, a, he's all bloody down, same eye, you know." He goes, "You got any more butterflies?" <laughs> so it's, it becomes, it started to become a regular joke for us. He gets himself hurt and gets his eyes busted all the time. But we move into Pirates World. Things are going well. The territory is doing great. Uh, a lot of things are going to start happening. 
my life is about to kick into big big gear here uh, very soon. I get a, I get the opportunity to go to Australia again, and this time I'm ready for it. Uh, it's it's a good time for me, a good time frame, and a great place for me to be. So I think that uh, pretty well covers what I'd like to uh, I'd like to talk about today. And uh, so, do you have anything else, Brian? You got questions about any of that? I think you summed up everything perfectly, Ron. So as we begin to wrap things up here, we want to remind everyone, you can become friends with the Tennessee Stud on Facebook. The page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. You can also follow the Tennessee Stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can check out his website, tnstud.com, for the Stud Store souvenirs, as well as every episode of the Studcast and the Super Studcast. And if you want to hear the Super Studcast, Please consider becoming a patron of all Super Studcasts, and you get a chance to listen to all eight editions, all eight two-hour Super Studcasts, as well as the one-hour follow-up, rest of the story, all available right now at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only, $2.99 a month. What a great deal. Don't forget the latest rest of the story with Honky Tonk Man and Kevin Sullivan is now available for all patrons. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast, available at 605pod.com, or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts, Classic Wrestling Talk and Wrestling Humor. The 605 Super Podcast, you can follow me on Twitter, at GreatBrianLast. Ron, where are we going next week? Any more busted eyes? Oh, yeah, there's going to be quite a few more of those busted eyes. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get into one of them next week, but next week I want to talk a little bit about that spot show, uh, the Vero Beach spot show that's going to be one of the largest spot shows that Florida will ever run. Uh, and I'm pretty proud of that because of some of the things that I developed there that I'm going to be carrying over into Southeastern Wrestling when I get my own company and I go to Knoxville. I'm going to utilize some of the things I learned in this little Vero Beach. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, different matches. Uh, I'm going to have my first lights out match. Uh, there's a lot of lights out matches in Florida uh, back in those days, and it's with Big Bad John. And uh, he and I are pretty much the same size. Uh, you know, he's a big old guy himself. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that lights out match, and uh, and I'm going to be uh, in a match. It's going to be refereed by one of the all time greatest. Uh, most famous athletes in the history of the country, uh, Joe Lewis, uh, which is a fabulous opportunity for me. Just to meet Joe Lewis is a is a big thrill in itself, but he's actually going to referee a match that I have. And uh, so I'm beginning to get somewhere, and we're going to continue on this. Uh, we're going to push on here in Florida. Uh, we'll keep talking about some of the great talent that's coming in there and how business is. And soon here, we're going to be headed off to Australia, and uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction. For another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>